turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Lord, we do just uh, thank you that we can gather together in this great country with the freedom of religion and open your word together and consider it. And Lord, we do pray today, Lord, that you would minister to our hearts and minds. We pray that you would encourage us in the faith. We pray that you would equip us to be uh, better prepared ambassadors of Christ, people who know not only what we believe, but why we believe it. So work here, we pray today in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, when Peter wrote this epistle back in the first century, there were all kinds of popular myths and stories swirling about the Roman Empire concerning a variety of man-made deities. The ancient Greeks had passed around stories for centuries concerning gods and goddesses like Zeus, Poseidon, Artemis, and Athena, just to name a few. The stories were outlandish tales of these deities' love affairs, their exploits and battles, and a litany of sins and bizarre behavior. If you've ever studied Greek mythology, you know what I'm referring to. And unfortunately, many of the Greeks and Romans believed these cleverly devised myths the remains of their temples all over the ancient Roman Empire, the ruins of which are still around today, bear witness to that fact. Well, here in 2 Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter assures his readers that Jesus' followers had not placed their faith in a man-made deity like Zeus or Poseidon, whom no one had ever even seen. No, notice with me there in your Bibles. In verse 16, Peter writes this. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Jesus was not a mythological deity. Peter, who was likely writing this letter from a Roman prison, and who would just shortly after the completion of this letter be crucified on a Roman cross for his faith, said here in this verse, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, Peter says here, we're not passing along to you fables. We ate with Jesus. We we traveled with him. We heard him teach. We saw his miracles. We watched him heal the lame. We witnessed him opening the eyes of the blind. We saw him shining with the glory of God there on the Mount of Transfiguration, and we saw him alive after his crucifixion. It was this kind of personal interaction with Jesus over the course of three years that led Jesus' first followers to conclude that Jesus truly was the Messiah the Savior that God had promised long centuries beforehand would one day come into the world to make a way for sinful humanity to be reconciled back into a right relationship with our Maker. 
And if you've studied the scriptures and given any kind of serious consideration to the wealth of evidences for Jesus' life, I trust that you too have come to the same conclusion that Jesus' first followers came to. You're convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. Well, of course, I'm sure you've noticed that there are uh, a variety of critics today and skeptics of the Christian faith who uh, scoff at our conclusions regarding Jesus. I'm sure you've noticed that there are a plethora of books and DVDs, documentaries, and websites out today attacking Jesus' existence, his deity, his resurrection, and the accuracy of the gospel's accounts of his life. Well, this morning, I'd like to offer some concise answers, some concise responses to eight of these popular attacks and challenges concerning our Lord and Savior, Jesus. My hope is that responding to the critics here this morning and their different assaults on Christ will be an encouragement to your faith, but that it will also help equip you with some ways that you can be better prepared to talk to skeptics and critics of Christianity as well. The first issue I want to tackle concerns Jesus's existence. Jesus's existence, it has become increasingly popular today for critics of the Bible to suggest that Jesus of Nazareth never even existed, that he was just an invention by some deceitful men back in the first century. Well, this claim that's become popular today, that Jesus never even existed, is an absurd accusation. Why is that? Well, because there is a wealth of historical evidence that Jesus did exist. In addition to the 27 documents in the New Testament that tell us all about his life and ministry, more than 30 extra biblical sources, sources outside of the New Testament, mentioned Jesus within 150 years of his life. If you're a note taker, you might jot down that number. Many non-Christians who bring this up are completely unaware of the fact that there's even a single mention of Jesus outside of the New Testament. Let me tell you about four of these sources just quickly. The first is this man, Flavius Josephus. Flavius Josephus was a historian for the Roman Empire in the first century AD. He mentions more than a dozen individuals talked about in the New Testament, including John the Baptist, Herod the Great, Pontius Pilate, Caiaphas, and even Jesus. Here's a short excerpt from one of his writings. He says, at this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good and was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Now, some critics of the Bible say that Josephus' references to Jesus here and elsewhere were likely forgeries, 
by Christians who came along after Josephus and tampered with his writings. Well, there's absolutely no evidence that this ever occurred, but even if Josephus' references to Jesus were forgeries, there's still a wealth of extra-biblical evidence that Jesus existed. For example, a second source outside of the Bible that mentions Jesus is this man, Cornelius Tacitus. Cornelius Tacitus lived from about AD 55 to the year 120. He was a Roman historian who lived through the reigns of over a half dozen Roman emperors. He's been called the greatest historian of ancient Rome. And Tacitus mentions Jesus in his work titled Annals. Here's a short excerpt. He says, Christus, which is a Latin term that means Christ, suffered the extreme penalty, a reference to Roman crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. So note that not only does Tacitus mention Jesus, he confirms, like Josephus did, that Jesus was crucified by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus. A third extra-biblical source that mentions Jesus is this man, Suetonius. Suetonius lived from A.D. 69 to sometime after the year 122. He was another first-century Roman historian. In fact, he was the chief secretary to the Roman emperor by the name of Hadrian. A fourth extra-biblical source that mentions Jesus is this collection of writings known as the Jewish Talmud. The Talmud is a compilation of Jewish teachings that were passed down from generation to generation amongst the Jews and then finally organized and compiled sometime after the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70. Here's a short excerpt here on the screen. The Talmud says, on the eve of Passover, Yeshu, which is a Hebrew reference to Jesus, was hanged. Speaking about the fact that Jesus was hung on the tree or the cross. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, he's going forth to be stoned because he's practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But... Since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of the Passover. So note that not only does the Talmud mention Jesus, it mentions his crucifixion. It mentions the fact that the Jewish religious leaders desired to stone Jesus, just as John chapter 10 tells us. And notice that it even says Jesus was put to death at the time of what feast? The feast of Passover, the very feast John chapter 18 tells us was going on when Jesus was put to death. Now, I could go on and on with this kind of evidence for Jesus outside of the Bible. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, there are more than 30 of these sources that mention Jesus uh, outside of the Bible within 150 years of his life. It's this kind of evidence outside of the Bible that has led to a consensus today amongst reputable historians all over the world. And that consensus is that Jesus really existed. He was a real historical figure. 
The evidence for his life is so compelling that even Bart Ehrman, one of the most vocal critics of the Bible alive today, acknowledged acknowledges that Jesus lived. In an article a couple years ago in the Huffington Post, Bart Ehrman said, with respect to Jesus, we have numerous independent accounts of his life, sources that originated in Jesus's native tongue and that can be dated to within just a year or two of his life. Historical sources like that are pretty astounding for an ancient figure of any kind. The claim that Jesus was simply made up falters on every ground, end quote. Yes, it does falter. So if the evidence for Jesus is this compelling, why are many atheists today telling us that Jesus is just a myth? Well, many of them have never done any serious investigation into this matter, and those who have done a bit of reading are getting their information, apparently, from unreliable sources. Have you come to learn that there's a lot of things on the internet that you can't trust today? People send me YouTube video links all the time, and you just, you just have to stand back in awe at what people uh, are willing to buy into today. You have to be very careful when you come to conclusions regarding important matters by just looking at a YouTube video or reading some link that somebody emails you. All right, so with Jesus' existence settled, let's tackle a second challenge critics are raising today, and that concerns Jesus' deity. Jesus' deity, of course, Christians have long believed that Jesus was God incarnate. Well, of course, this is being challenged today by Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, and other critics of the Bible who claim that the earliest Christians never believed Jesus was God. These critics say that that view is something that evolved three or four centuries later. Well, those who make this claim could not be more mistaken about the matter. The earliest Christians certainly did believe Jesus was God. For example, if you're still opened up in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1, you'll notice that the Apostle Peter, all the way back in the first century, called Jesus our God and Savior, right there at the end of the very first verse of this letter. The apostle John calls Jesus God in the opening verse of his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, the apostle Thomas calls Jesus uh, my Lord and my God in John chapter 20, verse 28. The apostle Paul calls Jesus our great God and Savior in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Well, these and dozens of other statements in the New Testament make it clear that the earliest followers of Jesus did believe Jesus was God. But it's not just the first century disciples who believed Jesus was God. The leaders of the Christian church in the second and third centuries continued to express their belief that Jesus was God. Men like Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Polycarp, Irenaeus, and other well-respected leaders in the early Christian church refer to Jesus over and over again in their writings as God. So not only does the New Testament make it clear that the earliest Christians believed Jesus was God, the early church fathers affirmed this as well. Friends, the critics, those Jehovah's Witnesses, perhaps, that come to your porch and try to tell you these kinds of things, um, 
what they're telling you can be blown out of the water by a wealth of facts to the contrary. If you'd like to read a long list of quotes by the early church fathers referring to Jesus as God, I encourage you to check out our website at alwaysbeready.com. You can click on our link called Deity of Christ. We've got lots of resources there for you. Now, one of the reasons the earliest followers of Jesus came to the conclusion that Jesus was God uh, was his miracles. Jesus didn't just claim to be God. Anybody can do that. Jesus backed up his claims by doing miraculous things that only God can do. And this brings us to the third issue I'd like to tackle this morning, and that concerns Jesus' miracles. Jesus' miracles. Of course, atheists and other critics of the Bible have a problem with Jesus' miracles. They suggest, among other things, that the early Christians embellished the accounts of Jesus' life with stories about miracles in order to attract more followers. And it comes as no surprise, really, that atheists say this. They are actually forced by their atheistic worldview to deny Jesus' miracles. Not because there's any evidence miracles can't occur, but because of their anti-supernatural bias. Their anti-supernatural bias forces atheists to deny Jesus' miracles. Why is that? Well, because in a universe where no God exists, nothing supernatural or miraculous can occur. So, critics of the Bible, atheists in particular, come across Jesus' miracles in the New Testament, and they say, no way. These things couldn't have happened. They must be made up. But for those of us who believe in God, we have no difficulty believing that Jesus performed miracles because if Jesus was the very one who spoke the universe and all of life into existence in Genesis chapter 1, then it would be no problem, for example, for him to speak life into a dead man like Lazarus. God's the one who designed the human body and who created the first man from dust. Breathing life back into Lazarus's body would not be a problem for our creator. So our worldview doesn't prevent us from believing in miracles before we've even considered the evidence. Unlike atheists, when it comes to miracles, we are free to follow the evidence wherever it points, and we believe there's good evidence Jesus did perform miracles. What evidence am I talking about? Well, take, for example, the rise of Christianity in Jerusalem. The rise of Christianity in Jerusalem, it is an accepted historical fact that the Christian faith, a religion built upon the preaching of the resurrection of its leader, originated in approximately A.D. 32 in the very city of Jerusalem where Jesus had been publicly crucified and buried. Now, this in itself is a good piece of evidence that Jesus' miracles actually occurred. Why is that? Well, because a message calling people to repent and put their faith in a resurrected, miracle-working Messiah could never have gained any substantial following in Jerusalem if the people had not actually seen Jesus work miracles. 
The best explanation for the immediate rise of Christianity, followed by its phenomenal growth right there in the very city where Jesus was crucified, is that Jesus really did rise from the grave and work miracles. Luke tells us that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering, after his crucifixion, by many convincing proofs appearing to people over a period, he says, of 40 days. Jesus didn't just rise from the grave and then disappear, ascending right back to heaven the next day. He spent 40 days interacting with hundreds of people, the New Testament tells us. That's what launched Christianity into existence right there in the very city where even Flavius Josephus says he was put to death and buried. It's a fact confirmed outside of the New Testament that Jesus died and was buried in Jerusalem. How do you get a movement off the ground with thousands and thousands of followers buying into it unless they had actually seen Jesus perform miracles or see him risen from the grave? Another line of evidence that Jesus performed miracles is the fact that the early Christians were willing to endure great hostility telling people about Jesus' miracles. Why would they do that if they were lying? Liars lie to get out of trouble or to gain some type of advantage or benefit, but what the early Christians said about Jesus didn't get them out of trouble or result in any kind of benefit. What these men said and wrote about Jesus actually got them in trouble. What they received was rejection, torture, persecution, and martyrdom, hardly a list of perks. That, to me, is compelling evidence that these men were telling us the truth about Jesus and his miracles. All right, I briefly responded to some challenges regarding his existence, his deity, and his resurrection. Next, I'd like to respond to a fourth challenge critics are raising today, and that has to do with whether or not Jesus was just a copycat savior. Whether or not Jesus was just a copycat savior, what am I talking about? Well, in 2007, a movie was released on the internet, (laughs) surprise, surprise, uh, called Zeitgeist. I'm sure some of you have seen this uh, low-budget video, but this video has been viewed by millions of people all over the world since its release, and many people unaware of the video's numerous errors have had their confidence in the gospels undermined by watching it. The movie sets out to prove Jesus was a myth by convincing people that the gospel writers borrowed major details for Jesus' life from earlier sources, other religions that were around before Jesus' incarnation. And if that is the case, the movie concludes that the writers of the Gospels were just deceivers, and Jesus himself is just a myth. He never even existed. That's basically how the video concludes. Well, I've already discussed how ludicrous the Jesus is a myth claim is, so I won't rehash that, but the Zeitgeist movie leaves many viewers wondering if perhaps the authors of the Gospels did borrow or steal some of the details for Jesus' life story from other sources. Did they steal the idea for Jesus' resurrection? As the Zeitgeist movie says, well, 
The answer is no. Jesus' resurrection was not hijacked from some other ancient religion. It was the fulfillment of prophecies made by Jewish prophets as far back as a thousand years before Jesus was even born. David, writing around 1000 BC, and the prophet Isaiah, prophesying around 700 BC, both foretold the Messiah's resurrection. They prophesied it would happen long before Jesus was even born. Dr. Norman Geisler, a scholar who's done extensive research on this issue of whether the disciples plagiarized from other religions, points out that the first real parallel of a dying and rising God does not appear until A.D. 150, more than 100 years after the origin of Christianity. So if there was any influence of one on the other, it was the influence of the historical event of the New Testament on mythology, not the reverse. He continues, he says, the only known account of a God surviving death that predates Christianity is the Egyptian cult god Osiris. In this myth, Osiris is cut into 14 pieces, scattered around Egypt, then reassembled and brought back to life by the goddess Isis. However, Osiris does not actually come back to physical life, but becomes a member of a shadowy underworld. This is far different than Jesus' resurrection account, where he was the gloriously risen prince of life who was seen by others on earth before his ascension into heaven. Well said there. Well, what about Jesus' virgin birth? The Zeitgeist video alleges that the gospel writers stole the whole idea of a virgin giving birth to a child from ancient religions like Mithraism. Well, I know a thing or two um, about ancient religions, having spent hundreds of hours now researching them over the years, and I've researched the ancient Persian religion of Mithraism, and its mythological deity by the name of Mithras was never thought of as having been born of a virgin in any of the most ancient myths. The myths actually say that Mithras arose spontaneously from a rock inside a cave. Does that sound like a virgin birth to you? <laughs> to suggest that the gospel writers stole the idea for Jesus' virgin birth from this ancient religion is preposterous. The virgin birth of the Messiah, spoken about in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, was not hijacked from Mithraism. It was the fulfillment of a prophecy given in the Old Testament book of Isaiah six or 700 years before Jesus' birth. And many Bible commentators believe that the virgin birth of the coming Messiah was prophesied as far back as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God seems to indicate that the coming Messiah would be born solely of the woman's seed. Friends, you can be confident Jesus' disciples did not steal any 
of the details for Jesus' life from sources outside of the Bible. If you'd like some additional help addressing the alleged parallels between ancient religions and Christianity that critics are bringing up today, I encourage you again to check out our website at alwaysbeready.com. All the topics are listed in alphabetical order down the left-hand side of our homepage. Go all the way down to the bottom and click on Zeitgeist, Is Jesus a myth, and we respond to more of those uh, allegations there. All right, moving along, there's a fifth challenge critics often bring up when talking about Jesus, and that concerns alleged contradictions in the Gospels. Many critics of the Bible have pointed to what appear to be contradictions in the Gospels as proof that these accounts of Jesus' life are not trustworthy. Well, in response to that, I will acknowledge, as every good Bible commentary does, that there are a handful of verses in the Gospels that can appear to be at odds with one another. But with a little investigation into the context of the various passages or the cultural and geographical settings in which the Gospels were written or an occasional look into the original language, these apparent contradictions are easily explained. For example, critics say there's a contradiction in the Gospels concerning Jesus' occupation. Jesus' occupation. Notice the question that people were asking about Jesus in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. They said, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. So according to this passage, we learn that Jesus was a carpenter. Who would agree here today that Jesus was a carpenter by trade? Okay. How many of you won't raise your hand no matter what I ask? Okay. A couple of you. Okay. Just checking. Who thinks this is a trick question? (laughs) No, no trick question. He was a carpenter, right? Mark chapter six makes that pretty clear. But the critics read that and then they flip over to Matthew's gospel chapter 13 and they think there's a problem. Notice this on the screen. Verse 54 says, and when he had come to his own country, he, Jesus, taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Ah, well, critics on the lookout for ways to discredit the Gospels say that the Gospels contradict one another here. Why is that? Well, one says Jesus was a carpenter, and another says his father was the carpenter. So which was it? Was Jesus the carpenter, as Mark tells us, or was Joseph the carpenter, as Matthew tells us? Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. In fact, I've shared this very presentation with junior high kids, and as soon as I ask them the question, kids, who was the carpenter? All of their hands go flying up into the air because even they can figure out the solution. They were both carpenters. They were both carpenters. Jesus, like most men at the time, followed in the footsteps of his father. The crowd of people realized that, and they were asking both questions. Some people were saying, hey, isn't this just the carpenter? And others were saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? So there's no contradiction here at all. This apparent contradiction is laid to rest with some careful junior high-level reflection, (laughs) as is the case with many of them. Another apparent contradiction critics have pointed out in the Gospels has to do with Jesus' location when he healed a blind man. 
Jesus' location when he healed a blind man. Luke chapter 18, verse 35 says, Jesus healed a blind man as he was approaching Jericho. But Mark chapter 10, verse 46 says, he healed that same man as he went out of Jericho. So critics say, well, surely Luke or Mark made a mistake. They can't possibly both be right. And that appears to be the case until you do a little homework and you find out that a German archaeologist by the name of Ernst Selim working on an excavation in Israel between 1907 and 1909 discovered that there were actually what have now been called the twin cities of Jericho in Jesus' time. There was the old city of Jericho, destroyed in the book of Joshua, but rebuilt in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34. And there was the new Roman city by the same name. There were actually two cities called Jericho in the first century, separated from one another by about a mile. Well, knowing this solves the dilemma. It's likely that Luke referred to one of the cities and Mark referred to the other. A plausible explanation is that the miracle took place between the two cities. Mark mentioning the city Jesus had just left, Luke mentioning the city Jesus was approaching. The authors of the Gospels didn't err. The critic who assumes there is an error is the one who makes the mistake because he or she is unfamiliar with ancient Roman and uh, Jewish geography. Critics of the Bible would be wise to consult a good Bible commentary or two before passing judgment on the Bible because these kinds of solutions, two of which I just walked you through, are readily available today to anyone willing to do a little homework. And we address more of them on our website. At alwaysbeready.com, we've got a Bible difficulty section, and we'll walk you through the solution to uh, more of these if you could use the help there. All right, let's consider a sixth challenge critics bring up when talking about Jesus, and that concerns Jesus's alleged scientific errors. Critics of the Gospels have pointed to what they believe are scientific errors in Jesus' teachings. And if those errors really exist, critics say, Jesus could not have been God, for God certainly would not have made those kinds of mistakes. Well, the critics would be right if those errors really did exist, but they don't. Let's briefly consider one example of an alleged scientific error in Jesus' teaching. Notice what Jesus said to Nicodemus here on the screen in John's gospel. Chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus said to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. Well, some critics of the Bible have pointed to this verse and said things like the following. I cut and paste this off a popular atheist website. Here's what he said. He said, Jesus says that no one knows which way the wind is blowing, but of course he was wrong about that. The direction and speed of the wind are easily measured. <laughs> is that what Jesus said? <laughs> that no one knows which way the wind is blowing? No. Uh, did Jesus say no one could measure the speed of wind? No. Let's read the verse again. He says to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, and you, you, Nicodemus, hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. 
So notice that Jesus doesn't say no one can know which way the wind blows, as the atheist website said. He says, you, you, Nicodemus, cannot tell where the wind comes from and where it goes. Jesus was not addressing a group of meteorologists living in the 21st century with all their barometers and uh, computers and weather satellites flying overhead. He was speaking to a man who lived 2,000 years ago, Nicodemus. 1,600 years before the barometer was even invented, 1,700 years before the first thermometer was invented, and 1,900 years before the first weather satellite was launched. Without any of these modern technologies that we have and use today for tracking storms, Nicodemus did not know where the wind came from nor where it was going. There's no scientific blunder here in John chapter 3, and there's no reason to conclude Jesus made any errors concerning matters that can be checked out scientifically, and we address many more of these on our website as well. All right, moving along, let's consider a seventh challenge critics bring up when talking about Jesus. A little background story for you first. A few months ago, I was on a flight from San Diego, where I live, out to Philadelphia. I was scheduled to speak at a conference on the reliability of the Bible. And I had a great conversation with the lady seated next to me on the flight. Um, And uh, she, I, I came through just the conversation I had come to discover that she had abandoned her confidence in the Bible some 20 years ago, and now at the age of 40, she was full of doubts concerning the Bible's reliability. And yes, I do believe God sometimes seats me right next to people who need to hear just, you know, a little a different view. <laughs> but um, anyways, one of the objections that she brought up with me concerning the reliability of the Gospels concerned the late authorship of the Gospels or the supposed late authorship of the Gospels. And this is the seventh issue I'd like to briefly discuss with you. The lady on the plane told me that one of the reasons she doubted the Gospels now was because, quote, The Gospels were written down 300 years after Jesus lived, she said. Now, I've heard this before, as you probably have. Critics raise this particular objection to suggest that the Gospels couldn't possibly be trustworthy if they were written that long after Jesus lived. Well, what should we do when someone makes a claim like this? I like to first note to myself as I'm looking at them in the conversation that they haven't asked me a question. She hasn't asked for my viewpoint. She hasn't asked my opinion on anything. She has just made a claim. Before I even explain my view or why I disagree with a person, I like to see if they can even support their viewpoint with any kind of evidence as to why they should be taken seriously. And so I like to put the burden of proof back on the person. And so there's a variety of ways to do that. But one of my favorite ways is just by asking them a couple of questions. And so that's what I did with Monica. That was her name. I asked Monica this question. I said, well, who told you that? Who told you that? In other words, how did you come to that conclusion? Is that a perfectly fair question? Okay, you have to watch your tone. Okay, you don't throw up your hands and say, well, who told you that, Monica? as though it sounds totally ridiculous. No, I just, just in humility and love, I said, well, Monica, who, who told you that? How, how did you come to that conclusion? Her response, weren't they? Weren't they? 
She went from sounding like an authority on the matter to someone completely unsure of what she had just boldly proclaimed, all in response to one friendly question. She didn't even know why she believed what she had just stated, and this is very common. Critics make all kinds of claims about Jesus in the Bible that they are often completely unprepared to back up with any kind of evidence. Well, this gave me the opportunity to then explain to Monica that there's no evidence any of the New Testament books were written down 300 years after Jesus and that not even liberal scholars believe that. And not only is there an absence of evidence for a late authorship of the Gospels, there's good evidence most of the New Testament was written down before A.D. 70, What evidence am I talking about? Well, just let me mention a couple lines of evidence. The first one is this. The New Testament scriptures are absolutely silent regarding the destruction of the Jewish temple by the Romans in AD 70. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 was one of the most significant events in all of Jewish history. Well, the silence of the New Testament authors regarding this event strongly suggests that their writings were completed prior to this event. Let me illustrate. Let's suppose that this afternoon, after church gets out, you go over to a friend's house, maybe to watch uh, one of the ball games with some friends. And so you go over to their house and you plop down on their comfy couch there. And while you're waiting for some other friends to show up and enjoy the festivities, you notice a book there on the coffee table addressing the history of New York City. So having a few minutes to kill, you flip through the whole book and you realize by the end that there was not a single mention of the destruction of the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001. Question for you. Could you then confidently assume the book must have been published or written prior to that infamous date? I think so. Well, the same is true with the New Testament. Its silence regarding the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is a strong indicator that the New Testament was largely completed prior to that event. Another indicator, most of the New Testament was completed prior to AD 70, centers around the martyrdoms of the apostles Peter and Paul. We know from extra-biblical historical sources that the apostle Paul was put to death around AD 64 and Peter just one year later in AD 65. And though the deaths of other prominent Christians are mentioned in the New Testament, including the stoning of Stephen and the beheading of James, both mentioned in the book of Acts, the deaths of these two apostles, Peter and Paul, not mentioned a single time anywhere in the New Testament. Friends, that suggests that the New Testament was largely completed prior to when those events took place. So those are just a couple of the quick reasons why scholars have concluded that the New Testament was actually written down early within the lifetimes of those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. Those who claim that the Gospels were written down two or three centuries after Jesus lived are overlooking a wealth of evidence to the contrary. All right, let's head down the home stretch here and consider an eighth and final challenge that critics have brought up, and it has to do with other 
supposed gospels. Other supposed gospels. Critics of Christianity commonly say that we can't know the real truth about Jesus because the early Christians purposely left other gospels that gave us additional information about Jesus out of the Bible. Well, what are we to think about that challenge? Well, there were writings floating around in the centuries following Jesus' life that do mention Jesus and that were left out of the New Testament. So that does raise the question, why did Christians leave those writings out of the Bible? Well, to answer the question concisely, the short answer is this, they never belonged in the Bible. They never belonged in the Bible. When the so-called Gospel of Thomas and other Gospels, purportedly written by Judas, Philip, and Mary Magdalene, started appearing on the scene long after these persons died, Christians recognized them for what they were, pseudo-Gospels that were uninspired, spurious writings. They realized these writings were not written by Thomas and the others, but by false teachers who used the disciples' names as they sought to influence the Christian church with their unbiblical, heretical ideas. Every one of these so-called gospels that were left out of the New Testament has been found by scholars to have originated in the second or third century AD, long after the time Jesus, Thomas, Mary Magdalene, Philip, and Judas lived. So that was one thing that gave them away as fakes. But in addition to the late arrival of these writings, there was plenty of internal evidence, evidence within the writings themselves that gave them away as fakes. For example, Consider these outlandish words that the gospel of Thomas puts into the mouths of the apostle Peter and Jesus. I'll put it on the screen for you. Here it is, short excerpt from the gospel of Thomas. Peter says this, supposedly, to Jesus, make Mary leave us for females don't deserve life. Can you imagine if that was in the New Testament and that's where you happen to land on Mother's Day (laughs) as a pastor? (laughs) <laughs> happy, Mo- happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there today. Uh, open up with me to the Gospel of Thomas, chapter 1. We're in verse 118 this week. That does not preach well. Females don't deserve life? Does that sound like something you've read in any of Peter's writings? I don't think so. It gets crazier, though. Look at Jesus' supposed response. He says, look, I will guide her to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the domain of heaven. (laughs) Friends, it was these kinds of bizarre, outrageous, heretical sayings in the Gospel of Thomas and other writings that gave them away as fakes. The Christians who were widely familiar by that point with the genuine teachings of Christ and the apostles knew instantly that these were not the kinds of things Peter or Jesus ever said. And so this so-called gospel, the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of Judas and the so-called gospel of Mary Magdalene were purposely left out of the Bible. 
Friends, if you've placed your faith in the Jesus spoken about in the four authentic gospels, you have not followed cleverly devised fables. There is good evidence that Jesus was a real person and that the gospels are accurate records of his life. And this is wonderful news, friends. Because the four authentic gospels contain the greatest news humanity could ever hear. The news that 2,000 years ago, your maker, God in the flesh, out of his great love for you, suffered and died on a cruel wooden Roman cross to take the punishment for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be saved from eternity in hell and be brought back into a relationship with him. He rose from the grave three days later, and today he's offering all of mankind the forgiveness of sins and the free gift of everlasting life to all those who will place their faith in him. Friend, if you need to be reconciled to God, today is the day. Don't put it off. Call upon the name of the Lord today and be saved. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here in 45 minutes. I do want to point out that we have DVDs of this entire presentation available. If you would like to go back over any of this material or perhaps pick up a copy that you can have available to loan out to friends who doubt the reliability of the Bible or um, the person of Jesus. One other resource I want to mention before I close in prayer um, that's available today out in the lobby is this little USB uh, thumb drive. I love technology. If you saw my resource table on the way in, we've uh, just, God's blessed us with the um, ability just to put out about, I think we're about 30 DVDs now over the past 10 years. These are DVDs of different presentations that I give in churches around the country. And with technology, just in this last uh, year or so, we've been able to put all 30 of these DVDs onto a tiny little USB flash drive that's smaller than a AA battery. That's how tiny it is. You can take this USB drive if you're interested um, uh, and stick it right into your TV. Most of the newer TVs today, whether you know it or not, on the back or somewhere on the side, they usually have a USB port. You can stick it in there and then watch the DVDs that way. Or you can watch them on your laptop or transfer the videos to your iPad or iPhone or that kind of thing if you'd like to uh, just continue to learn how to contend earnestly for the faith, as we're told to do in Jude chapter 1, verse 3. So thought I'd highlight those resources. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. And uh, then we'll dismiss. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, God, for this time today that we've been able to consider some of the challenges that atheists and critics bring up uh, regarding Jesus. And we're thankful, God, that there are answers to these challenges and not just answers, but a wealth of evidence for Jesus' life. We haven't followed after cleverly devised myths or fables. No, there's good evidence that Jesus lived and died on a cross under the reign of Pontius Pilate and rose from the grave three days later. And so, God, we want to live for you today and always. And, God, we pray that you would embolden us to uh, talk to people about Jesus, Lord, to share the gospel with people. And we pray that you'd give us a fresh burden today to be concerned about the perishing, God, and that you would help us to reach out to them. And we do pray, Lord, that you would use us for the furtherance of the gospel in this generation. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. God bless you.